Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay. The inquiring mind. How many people get the inquiring mind? Good. How many people uh, contribute to the inquiring mind? Even better. How many? It's 26 years now? Starting their 27th year putting out really high caliber Dharma and inspiration besides putting out the retreat schedules and being the the vehicle for our community, feeling connected uh, even before cyberspace, right? Remember print? In spite of cyberspace. This is print. This is good stuff. Um, And it's all given freely, as I said before. And Alan and Barbara and Wes Nisker uh, for the last 26 years going on 27 years, have been doing this as a gift to the community. So I wanted to introduce um, Alan and Barbara uh, before we get into the um, uh, the material of the issue with Kevin. So meet Alan Novador. Hello. Um, you know, we've... We, uh, uh, each issue, we you know we send out tens of thousands of copies of Inquiring Mind, and we we have this kind of running joke of wondering if anybody actually reads them, and uh, so it's it's kind of nice to actually come here tonight and actually hear the fact that some people actually have read it, and so uh, we thank you for uh, having us here tonight to uh, listen to this conversation, um, and I uh, particularly you know uh, you know every few years or so. Um, we managed to come up with a theme that uh, just seems to have a particular resonance uh, for the particular moment in time. And uh, uh, as it turns out, this particular issue on addiction is one of those issues. And I, so I want to particularly thank Kevin for, for the uh, work that he did and along with Barbara to uh, put this issue together. It, uh, we've had an unprecedented amount of... Um, people, uh, since the issue has come out, write to us asking us to send copies to people, uh, to relatives, to friends, to uh, and asking us for a few extra copies or a bunch of extra copies or a whole lot of extra copies to, to, to distribute. And so thank you so much for, for all your work on this. It really turned out to be a, a marvelous issue. Um, in the way, shameless self-promotion stuff. Yeah, um, we, um, uh, we we're we're toying with the idea of um, this fall uh, having a um, uh, a benefit event uh, here in the East Bay, which uh, the idea for it uh, came out of actually um, the uh, I don't know how many of you were at at uh, the book uh, party for James's uh, James's book, but. Um, uh, at that event, uh, actually, my, my band was a band that played. So I could do that with her. Um, great bass player <laughs> for and, uh, classified, <laughs> a really uh, great dance band. Yeah. Anyway, we we had such a good time watching everybody in this community out there having fun dancing and having a party that we thought, well, maybe we should just have a party. Um, dance party. A dance party. 
Uh, and so we're, we're thinking of doing one this coming October, in this, probably in the same space as, as, as that party was. North Bray. Um, and uh, it, it'll be dancing. It'll also, there'll be some entertainment. Wes Nisker will do a, a short monologue. We have a couple other people who are lining up to, so there'll be some entertainment breaks. And, um, uh, you know, our question is whether, it's not something we've done before, and we wanted to kind of do it kind of as a, uh, as a fundraising event for the journal. And, you know, so I guess maybe want to take a pulse of whether that seems interesting to people and peop whether people would like to come for an evening of dancing. Would like to do, come okay. to a dance party to support the Inquiry Mind. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's go for it. Okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. So uh, uh, it's likely, it's going to be, if it, if it happens, it's going to be October 2nd. So you can all go home and write that in your calendar now. And... Um, <laughs> he's getting this calendar. Yeah. If you can get he's, this guy... Is the the real thing when it comes to lead guitar. So if he's if he's around, it's going to be very special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You hear? Yeah. Okay, good. Well, then we're going to have special guitar uh, performance, <laughs> by Ken. And um, so good. Well, uh, you'll Done. hear more through the email. Great. All right. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you've done, Barbara. I'm really glad to be here, and I also would like to. If, That's it. Hmm? I'd like to thank Kevin, because this issue would not—we could never have done this without him—and we should have had his name on the cover or so, something. You know, Kevin did this. You know, but anyway, he had amazing contacts, so we have a lot of new voices in this inquiring mind, and he took. Uh, the task so seriously and worked on it with such passion that it was a delight for me. Cause I get a little jaded after 27 years, so <laughs> <laughs> this was fantastic. Mm. Um, we're going to be having other um, guest editors in the future, and I don't know if any of you have ever uh, practiced with Sandy Boucher, but she's our um, uh, guest editor for the next issue, which is on enlightenment. Uh, and we're already thinking about who might be a guest editor for the following issue. Mm -hmm. so, um, this is uh, a new approach that we have with the journal. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I wanted to ask you before I stop talking is I'd like to ask you to write us letters to the editor. We know that some of you do read the journal, and we know that some of the articles are controversial. You may disagree with some of them. You may be inspired by others. You um, may some find some of them funny, or you may have um, your own thinking uh, triggered by you know, something that you read. We'd love for you to uh, get your thoughts down on paper and send them to us. Um, and that could happen on, on this addiction issue since you've all read it and you may have your own take on things. You may have a different interpretation of what addiction is. You may have an addiction that we've never heard of before. <laughs> you know. Anyway, please, um, <laughs> please uh, 
write, write your letters to us. We'd, we'd love to have them. Yes. Um, <laughs> Alan? Well, um, if, if, you you want, if you want yeah, letters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will, it, it is enough, G give, give it a week, but uh, <laughs> there will be uh, letters at inquiringmind.com. Okay? Letters, yeah. Great. Okay. Perfect. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks. So we will be checking into the letters column. Great. Thanks. Let's hear it for Barbara and Alan. Okay, you can go. Yeah. Barb, you can go. So now uh, it's a real pleasure to. Uh, share the evening with Kevin Griffin, who um, I first met, at least that came in my consciousness, uh, <laughs> that I met uh, when we sat the three-month retreat in 1981. Jane, who's sitting back there, with the, was, was sitting there as well, my, my wife Jane. And uh, Kevin would come to uh, our, uh, our sitting group, Thursday sitting group, which was going on even then, um, a few shortly after that and was a mainstay there and also then started to uh, lead the Wednesday group after Westnisker uh, started it, the one that's still going on in College Avenue. But he's gone on to uh, other things as uh, he's, he's really made an impact in um, particularly the 12-step community but not exclusively uh, with his books uh, One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. Um, and uh, his new book, A Burning Desire. Oh, there they are. Then uh, the burn A Burning Desire, which is uh, Dharma, God, uh, and the Path of Recovery, about that 11th step. What does it mean? Uh, what's your relationship to God, particularly if you're uh, a Dharma, Buddha Dharma practitioner? And uh, he goes around now teaching. He just came back from London. He was at a conference there, and... Uh, and and is very sought after uh, as a voice that uh, really has has um, inspired many people. So uh, besides doing the guest editing, his article on Buddhism and 12-step 12, 12 Dharma uh, is really the, the kind of um, the, opening, um, the opening piece that gets things rolling. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Kev. Thank you, James. <clears throat> well, uh, I haven't sat up here in a long time, and um, and it always makes me nervous to be in this place. And I, I know when I'm sitting, before I teach up here, I just practice following my heartbeat. It's just very interesting. It's always very strong. So um, I, I just was thinking about it, it was so. Um, great to have this opportunity to work on the Inquiring Mind, which I've been reading pretty much since it first started, when I was living in L.A., and uh, an issue showed up back in the early 80s, I guess it must have been 84. And um, so, uh, you know, it's really an honor to be, to be able to work on it. Um, and Barbara and Alan do incredible work. And Barbara is a, an amazing editor. 
and working with them and, and Wes and Dennis Green, I was trying to think of what it was. That it kind of reminded me of being in a rock and roll band. <laughs> like if you ever saw the movie Let It Be, it's kind of like people just going at each other. And then this great thing comes out of it, you know. So uh, it, it wasn't as much peace and love as I was expecting. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's the creative process. Uh, and um, so I, I don't really have a, I didn't really make a, like a big plan about what to talk about tonight. But, but I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about just the context of what it is that I do and why I do it. And, um, when I met James, actually the first time I became aware of James, he was managing the Yucca Valley retreat in the spring of 1981. And I was really a newbie on the cushion. And my Zafu, which I had purchased for the retreat, was after a couple of weeks, it was a three-week retreat, it started shrinking. <laughs> and it st I found that to really create a problem in my meditation because my Zafu wasn't high enough. And I went to James, who was the manager of the retreat, and asked him where they kept the extra kapok. Because I assumed that everybody must have this problem on retreats. And certainly, they always brought along a big extra stash of kapok. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> kapok? Get a clue, you know. <laughs> so I was very disappointed. But yeah, so, um, but at that time, uh, you know, I was still drinking and using and, and in some ways, you know, meditation for me was, I was trying to use it as another kind of fix. Um, uh, you know, a part of me was definitely on an authentic spiritual search and part of me was just trying to get high, you know, which is probably still true of most of us, right? Um, okay, maybe just me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and uh, consequently, you know, I went on that three-month retreat, and James was probably on his fourth or fifth at that point. And, it was my, and I'd only been practicing for a few months, and I decided, well, I'm going to get enlightened. I'm going to go to Barry for the three-month retreat. And I really wasn't prepared for it, and it, and it was... Um, a wonderful and incredible experience. And at the end of it, uh, you know, I was broke. And I mean, I sort of described this a little bit, I think, in this article. I was broke and I, w I didn't have a job. And I, I really didn't know what I was doing with my life. I was, you know, they call it the spiritual bypass. It's kind of way thinking you're going to fix your problems by just getting spiritual and avoiding them. And in fact, you know, six months after that, I abandoned Buddhism and went off with this kind of crazy street guru um, and lived on faith for until I ran out of faith. <laughs> <laughs> and then I lived on nothing for a while. You know. And I wound up homeless uh, down in Venice Beach, uh, you know, sleeping in my friend's van for six months. And, um, you, you know, I was really lost in many ways. And... and um, I always hung on to the Dharma and to Buddhism through those years, but um, but they weren't. Uh, for me, that wasn't enough to deal with the problems I had. You know? um, and it was only when I got sober in 1985 that I think my practice 
and my understanding of the Dharma started to take really um, authentic root. Um, but when I got sober, I realized that retreats weren't the thing that I needed. What I needed was a job. You know? What I needed was a place to live. And I needed to grow up. And, um, and the 12 steps, really, and the, and the 12 step programs, I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the fellowship and the support, um, and just the kind of clear, clear eyed quality uh, that I saw there, how people really um, had this integrity that I'd never had. Um, and, that, and that I, you know, I associate that integrity with with Buddhism too. But at the time when I got introduced to Buddhism, it was like the precepts were like, oh, that's cute, you know, but let's do the real thing, which is meditating and, you know, exploring emptiness. Um, so in a way, I feel like my Buddhist practice started when I got sober. And, the, and you know, when, when one of the models for the for the Buddhist path of spiritual development is called sila samadhi panya. Sila is the morality, and and what I think of as also the psychological uh, health healing quality, um, the uh, the sort of and an emotionally maturity, <laughs> emotional maturity that's a foundation for then samadhi, which is the concentration or meditation, and then panya, the wisdom, and and I had it turned exactly upside down. I thought I would get wise and meditate and then, then I'd be purified and then I'd follow the precepts after, after I got enlightened, you know. Um, but, but clearly um, getting sober in the 12 steps is a, is a sila practice fundamentally. And, um, and it's really true that when you have that foundation, and I certainly discovered that when having that foundation my meditation started to really uh, bear much more fruit. And it was actually, um, I went back to school and then uh, in 91 I moved up here. So I got sober in 85. I moved up here to go to Cal and, and rediscovered James and his group. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, that all, that all kind of came together. I mean, Berkeley is, you know, it's kind of ground zero for Buddhism, and and L.A. is not, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's it's trying and it's getting better, um, but uh, there's a community here and there's a, and a, um, so many wonderful teachers. So it was just uh, the timing was all right for me to kind of start to realize, wow, I can blend Buddhism and the twelve steps. Because at first, when I looked at the twelve steps, I was like, this has nothing to do with Buddhism. I felt powerless. I was like. Buddha doesn't talk about powerless. God, you know, writing an inventory. All that stuff seemed really unrelated to Buddhism. And, and it really took me years of getting into the steps. And then I think also developing a more authentic understanding of Buddhism as well to see how they did come together if I, if I looked at what their, uh, what their substance was, what the underlying themes were rather than just the surface language. Um, so I started to really explore those ideas then, and um, and I started to meet others who were, had some of the same interests. And eventually, James was uh, 
you know, generous enough to invite me into the first community Dharma leader training. And that gave me an opportunity to start to teach. And, and the, the thing that happened that surprised me was almost as soon as I started to sit in front of a group of people and talk about the Dharma, the 12-step ideas would come in. And they would kind of slip in by accident. And I would kind of, I, I, sometimes just the, some idea would just seem like the perfect way of expressing what I was trying to say about the Dharma. Some 12-step idea would seem like the perfect thing. And, and I thought, well, this is sort of strange because I'm the only sober Buddhist. So uh, it's a little the confusion I have about being unique. Uh, but what, I, what happened, and I remember the first time this happened, and it was probably the first time, maybe the first time I gave a talk, someone came up afterwards and said, say more about Buddhism and the 12 steps. That, I'm sober too. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, wow, someone else is interested in this. And so that kind of was the beginning of the, realizing that there was this big, silent part of the community or you know, kind of um, part of the community that was blended in. I mean, they're anonymous programs, so they don't, people don't come into the Buddhist center and go, hi, I'm a Buddhist and I'm an alcoholic. You know? I mean, they don't, usually they don't say anything because they're just meditating. So. You never know who they are. Um, you know, so, so I, that it started to just grow out of that uh, spontaneously. And then, you know, eventually, you know, Noah, actually, Noah Levine and I started to talk about this uh, when we met about 10 years ago. And, uh, and we actually did the first teaching that, that, uh, that either of us did on, on Buddhism, the 12 steps we did together. It was actually August of 2001, uh, sort of a you know, dramatic date in our, in our nation's history, that right before 9-11. Um, there's no relationship, but it's just, there it is. Um, and so once, once I realized, oh, yeah, you know, there's someone else who's into this, another teacher that I could share this with, um, you know, it all started to grow, and eventually I um, you know, wrote a book proposal. And, the rest is history, as they say. Um, but it's been quite interesting, and in, you know, the, it's it's a gift to be a teacher, as as James knows, and I'm sure many of you have had experience of. Um, when you're put in the role of being some kind of a leader, there's a responsibility that comes, and a sense of uh, of practicing for more than just yourself. And so that as I've, in my, as I've become more of a public person and people have read my books, I start to hear from many people who have lots of different viewpoints and lots of different experiences from mine. I, I got sober in AA and I had this very kind of traditional AA upbringing. But, but a lot of people come to me who are really alienated by AA or alienated by the 12 steps. Um, or you know whatever program, whether it's you know overeaters or narcotics or uh, Al-Anon, there's so many programs, uh, and, and I, they kind of come to me because they see me as this sort of alternative view. So what happens for me is that I start to learn about the different kinds of struggles, and it's opened up my mind so much, so that now I've started to meet people like Alan Marlat, who's in this issue, who's a 
an addiction researcher. And he does, he's developed mindfulness-based relapse prevention. And this is, you know, in a, in, in a certain world, you know, that's the, the thing. You know, the, in, in, the re, in the recovery professional's world, that's a, that's a big thing. He's a big name. But in the AA world, people don't know him at all. Um, and and I've, one of my goals is to really bring together these disparate approaches. Because to, to a great extent, it's interesting that there's, not surprisingly, people take these stances. This is, you, you know, there's these staunch 12-step people. And then there's people who are like, no, the 12 steps are bad. You should be mindful. There's a book called Mindful Recovery. And it kind of is like an anti-12-step book. Uh, you know, so you get these different people taking these different stances. As, you know, views and opinions tend to you know, get very locked in for people. And one of my goals as I go forward, and uh, I'm part of an organization called the Buddhist Recovery Network, is to bring together people rather than say, oh, my, my way is the best way, your way is bad, but rather to say, well, okay, that works for you. What's working for you? And, and this works for me. And let me show you what's working, you know, and see if we can create a more comprehensive program. Because the truth is that nobody has got a very effective recovery program in terms of percentages. Most people don't stay sober. You know, there's a very low recovery rate across the board, you know. So, uh, so nobody really should be claiming to have the, the way. Anyway, I, I didn't know I was going to talk about that, but uh, <laughs> what do you think? What, what, what is any idea what the percentage is? Uh, you know, it's really hard because the 12-step the programs are anonymous, so it's really hard to get numbers from them. And the, you see numbers from different treatment centers and stuff, and they're, they're usually, maybe at, the, at best, you have 30%, 25% yeah, success rate in terms of like a year or five years out. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's one article in there, and you were telling me uh, that you spent time with uh, the fellow who, who wrote it uh, about a recovery program in Thailand that has a very high percentage yeah. of success. You go there and it's your last resort. Yeah. You come to the end of the line yeah. and when you decide to do it, it's a very uh, moving article, yeah. uh, cold turkey uh, in, hot, in the hot climate. Uh, in the hot climate. Um, I think, you know, one thing uh, uh, for people who haven't been coming here and, and you haven't been here in the last few weeks, we've been um, looking at what I've been calling breaking the chains of craving. This is, this is the fourth week that we've been doing it. And looking at a lot of the different uh, articles that have been written from eating, uh, the article on uh, uh, mindful eating and, and breaking that, those habits, or last week we were working with not being so plugged in informationally and all. How, any, by the way, anybody been working with that this, this last week? Great, Okay. And what I have wanted to do is make it more than theoretical so that you're actually practicing. And so maybe uh, in this, this last week, as we look at breaking unskillful habits, the chains of craving, uh, you could maybe shed a little bit of light on how, for you, the 12-step the program 
was was a, a, such an, an impactful support because, like like you say, you know, it's really hard. We've been talking about it. The Buddha talked about it, you know, his whole life. This is the key to liberation: to not keep on doing things that you might know very well don't serve you, but somehow we do it anyway. How? Maybe that's a, an opening uh, little conversation, and then we can take some questions. Uh, how how did that work for you when you you tried other things and really wished that you would be able to change? How how what was the the magic in it that helped you break that craving cycle? Well, I think the truth is, and and this relates to the uh, the Thai monastery as well, that. I made a decision, and it was before, it was like the day, <laughs> you know, that day I woke up and I knew it was over in terms of my being able to drink and use, and I knew that if I went, if, that there was AA, and I, I knew somebody, I'd met a couple people who were in AA, and, I, and it seemed like something I could do, like, you know, I had some model of it that, okay, it's manageable. And... So it was more the decision to go than it was what happened when I got there. Mm-hmm. And this is really why the, what recovery, you know, what keeps people sober more than anything. And, and it's, in fact, if you go back to the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson and, and Dr. Bob, what they said was that they, they would go to meet with somebody who was like a prospect but when they would go when the guy was hung over, you know, and try to get him when he was really down. So when he was ready to change. And what and basically they said this that that it really only worked when somebody was at that point of being ready to change. And that and that's the problem in terms of you know, when you look at percentages of people who stay sober, you're actually only talking about a small percentage of the population who actually have a problem. 90% of people who have a drug or alcohol problem never even try to deal with it. And then the 10% who do, only you know, some small percentage of them succeed. So to me, the big challenge is how do you address the 90%? And that's the mystery. You know? so, so you have all these professionals running around who are dealing. I mean, Alan Marlat, his, his work is mindfulness-based relapse prevention not mindfulness-based, get you sober. You know, that's only after you've already made the effort to try to stay there. So it, it's, it's really an internal process that, you know, when I look back at it, I see that it was a karmic unfolding that, went, that took probably my, my whole drinking and drug career, practically. Because from the beginning, I was out of control in certain ways, and I knew it, and I was always trying to deal with it. And over those 20 years, gradually, you know, it was like, I I always think of it as these two kind of karmic flows. One of them was the one that was the addiction, and the other was the one that was on a spiritual search and trying to solve it. And up until, you know, June 7th, 1985, the addictive karma was more powerful. And at that point, somehow that other karma rose up and was enough. So, well, this is very much like 
the Eightfold Path the way I see it, that the first link is wise understanding, yeah, where exactly. you see, oh, okay, what's going on here? Where does, how is suffering caused? Where happiness lies? How does karma play into it? You see the picture, and then the second step, sometimes called right thought or wise thought, is also called wise intention, where you see in that first step, oh, this is what, what the deal is, and then wise intention is saying, I'm going for it. And once you make that decision, as the Buddha said, everything starts with intention. Through intention, we create karma, through body, speech, and mind, he says. Once you make that decision, maybe once you made the decision to, uh, to practice meditation or to do something that was for you instead of not for you, for your true well-being, then everything follows and issues from that. So that's the key to then first have that turning of the mind and then finding the supportive uh, practices and strategies. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, right view uh, yeah, is that same thing. The first step in the 12 steps is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, which is mean we, we, in that moment, we had right view about our condition. The, one of the things that, uh, one of the ways that I've started to think of the Four Noble Truths, or, or why I think the Buddha taught it this way, <laughs> is, the, you know, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. And, you, and, you know, people have kind of rebelled against that teaching or, whatever, you know, resisted that teaching. Why, don't, why do we have to focus on that first? You know, why not? Let's get to the enlightenment and then we'll talk about suffering later. But one of the things that's clear to me is that the only time we become willing to change is when we suffer, usually, most, for most of us. And in fact, we, the only time we become willing to change is become, when we become aware that we are suffering. Because we might, most of the time we're suffering and we don't know it. And so it, it strikes me that maybe why he really brought this up in the first place was he wanted, he knew that was what was going to inspire people to change. If you, you know, so I'm going to make this the first teaching you're going to deal with is like your suffering. Look at your suffering. Understand your suffering. Okay, 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 why am I doing this? And then finally it's like, God, why am I living like this? Wow, I need to change. And because that's what inspires us to change. So I, I don't know if that's an original observation. Or <laughs> it's probably really you know, obvious. Well, I, and in, his, in, in the, uh, the, the teaching Transcendental Dependent Arising, he says suffering can turn you towards faith because it shakes you out of your complacency and you start looking for answers. What is going on here anyway? You can't pretend. That's one of the prices that, that you pay for starting to wake up. You can't pretend you don't know any better. And it's humbling to see, oh, that's what I'm doing. Before then, you can just kind of you know, close your eyes and think everything is, is groovy. But when you see, oh, this is what I'm doing to create more pain and sorrow, and I don't want to do it. Uh, until you take a look at it, uh, you're going to keep on repeating those those habits. So uh, I think you're right on. Yeah. So maybe uh, uh, we can open it up and, and see um, if you have yes. anything uh, you want to say. Just 
anything that comes up about the topic or the issue and all. I'm going to bring this over. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I guess the part of reconciling the 12 steps in Buddhism that I'm most curious about, I think, is that it seems to me that a great deal of the path that one follows in Buddhism or insight meditation presumes a certain amount of rationality in the practitioner. In my experience in, in, in recovery, <coughs> doesn't really begin in rationality. Um, the first step to me, I, um, <coughs> I came into the first step on my knees and uh, not very choiceful. It was really <coughs> the last resort. And uh, there was nothing else to do, but I needed a great deal of support in order to not revert back to old habits. So for me, the, the, the emphasis on insight mm-hmm. is a little confusing. Well, does that, does uh, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I think the word insight is another one of those problematic words that gets translated and gets misunderstood because of our own kind of co- context for it. Insight in our culture means a thought. It means an idea that you, you get. You get this idea that clarifies something for you. And there's sort of a logic or some kind of, um, kind of um, flashing lights of information. And I don't think that that's what the word vipassana really means. Uh, when, I lo- when I reflect on the things that I think have been insights for me, usually I didn't realize I'd had them until quite a while later. Uh, I'm, that may be my own failing. But I think that, as I've heard a, um, a lot of um, teachers talk about insight, they usually really emphasize the, the um, nonverbal, just knowing quality of it. And, and in the text, it, it, you know, it talks about having clear seeing. You know, there's, there's sort of seeing, not, you know, insight, not clear thinking. You know, it's just kind of like a knowing quality, um, which I think is similar to what you're talking about. It's something more embodied. And um, and something ultimately a thought isn't ne- you know a, a like a psychological insight isn't necessarily going to change you in the same way that uh, the the insight the realization that you can't do this anymore that that becomes a transforming insight and it. The surrender of the first step and and uh, Buddhism. Um, sit down, and cross your legs, and close your eyes. It's pretty much the same thing. I mean, you you give up control. You know, meditation is a is a surrender to whatever is going to happen for this period of time. Uh, uh, and and you discover that you're not in control when you do it. Right, powerless over your thoughts, powerless over your body. You know, that's all comes up. I mean, right now I'm having this cramp right in the back of my knees. Like, I, I guess I, if I put my leg out straight, it'll go away. But 
I didn't invite it, I'll say that. <laughs> so, my body is not mine. Yeah, Tony? Yes. Um, I read your issue from cover to cover. Uh, primarily, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of the issues, but this one had a particular interest to me because I'm a psychologist and I've been treating people with addictions for a number of years. And I read it with great interest and I really commend you for it. And there was just one thing that I felt that was missing that I'd like to share. Only and one. Well, That's good. Actually, there are two, but I'll only talk about one I thought there was a lot more missing tonight. myself. But. And uh, uh, so it's more of a comment, but I, yeah. I'm interested in your response to my comment. Um, uh, there's a person named Joan Matthews Larson who's written a book called Seven Weeks to Sobriety. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a, a study that was done in Minnesota many years ago. Uh, she used to be at Hazleton. And uh, uh, it was a quite well-designed research project where they randomized the, the, the comparison groups and all of that. And uh, it, it was a the 12-step program uh, as one group, and then they added a component to the 12-step program with another group, and then did a five, I think it was a five-year, I'm not exactly sure, the follow-up uh, in terms of uh, recidivism rate. And the group that had the added component, okay, was a group that uh, was uh, assessed for their nutritional deficiencies mm -hmm. and hypoglycemia. And uh, they were given therapeutic nutrition uh, and treated for the hypoglycemia, okay, concurrently with the structure uh, of the 12-step program and, of course, the community support of that sangha, okay. And the, the results was that the 12-step the, uh, group was what you said. It was about a 20% or maybe, excuse me, 80% recidivism rate, 20% mm. were successful, I think about five years out, okay? But the group that had, was, that became aware of their hypoglycemia, their low blood sugar, and uh, needed nutritional support, uh, had only a 20% recidivism rate, 80% wow. success. Mm. Nobody could believe it. This was <laughs> done years ago, by the way. And so somebody independent of it replicated it and came up with approximately the same figures. Mm. Why that data is not more well-known in the 12-step community, I have no idea, yeah. okay? But in my own clinical practice, I've found it to be pretty accurate. Yeah. So I'm just interested in your, in your observation. Yeah, and I, have, I haven't heard that before, but um, it just, I, it's another piece to me. And I, I've, I've worked with um, people who are working with various forms of uh, supplements and nutritional stuff with uh, treatment and, and um, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that it's not in the 12-step world because the 12-step world is pretty insular. Um, you know, th there's the traditional text and that's all um, controlled by the programs like for instance, you can't read from any text that isn't uh, um, approved by the World Services of Alcoholics Anonymous in an AA meeting, in most AA meetings. There, I suppose there, there are some meetings that might make 
exceptions, but there are these kind of rules. So, so, and there's a lot of mythology in the 12-step world. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, there's a certain fundamentalist streak in them. And, I, you know, and here I am, you know, the person, I mean, uh, you know, I'm saying this from my viewpoint now. Uh, and as I was talking about, you know, it's something that I've seen more over the last six or seven years since I've been teaching this stuff and learning more about it. But, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really interested to hear that. And I'm, in fact, working with some people at the University of San Francisco, the University of California, San Francisco, um, who are doing research into using mindful eating uh, for, not for dr addiction, but actually for, for obesity and, and weight loss. So I'm, I'm very interested in the whole uses of, of food and eating as part of the recovery process. A lot of people who come to my programs, my classes and workshops, are have food called food addictions or food, you know, are in food programs. So it's a huge, huge issue, uh, nutrition. I'm so glad that I came tonight and met you because I bought, I got your book and I started reading it and you had said something I really didn't like. And so I shut it up. All right, lay it on it, me. Put it on the thing. And it was about, it was, I can't, the words weren't exactly, but it was something like, well, don't expect God to help. Don't expect God to help you. Just do it yourself, sort of. Okay. And I thought, he doesn't know anybody mm -hmm. because... I think addiction has to be very, uh, or the cover, cover, recovery is often very mysterious. I, 35 years ago or so, I was eating really, I was overweight. I was, uh, I had two and a half cigarette um, boxes of cigarettes a day, and I was drinking. And I just, and I didn't make any intention about anything. I had moved out here after a divorce. And I had a fair amount of grief, but I, I didn't, you know. And I decided I, I did go to a Catholic retreat for six days. And um, I was eating chocolate bars. I was uh, doing cigarettes during for my your hypoglycemia. time, you know. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing was going on. And um, the night before we were going to leave, uh, I was praying for my sons. They were all addicted to things. And I heard a voice. Now, I never heard a voice before. Mm -hmm. And this voice said, what are you going to do about your addiction? I said, I know I'm not doing very well. I know I'm eating candy bars. And it said, not that one. And I said, well, what one? I had no intention of stopping smoking. I didn't want to stop smoking. And it said, cigarettes. And I said, well, I can't do that. I've got to get my other things under control first. And it said to me, then stop praying for your children. Hmm. And I said, that's blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I smoked all night as much as I could. <laughs> and then the next morning, I woke up, and I realized that that was true, that I couldn't pray for my sons to do something that I wasn't willing to do. And so I said to this voice, which was probably gone by then, 
I said, if, if you have some power, I've never stopped anything in my life, and I, I, I can't. I know that. I didn't know anything about the 12-step program. And I never smoked another cigarette. The two, the, what I had left, I, and I never said I stopped, because I didn't stop. Something happened at mm -hmm. that time. Yeah. And it was an intention. It was, I, I get confused about the difference between Buddhism and Christianity in a way, because I'm in both places. Yeah. Well, well, let me just say that, that um, it's not always clear how change comes. Uh, you know, the Buddha talked about the impossibility of understanding all the karmic causes behind where you are right now. Yeah. And to see, to, to see all, try to unravel all the karmic causes for how we change it isn't practical. But I consider it risky to then assume that there's some magic going on that isn't karmically related. So what I, what I mean by that is that the law of karma says that everything has a cause and that every action, every thought, word, and deed has a, has a result. If my take on it is that if, we, if there is an exception to that, if there is something that is not caused other than nirvana, the unborn, but I'm going to put that aside for now. If there's anything, if you know, if you got sober through something that wasn't caused, then that blows the whole theory of the law of karma. Then, there, if there's one thing that isn't caused, then you know it kind of ruins it. And the Buddha said that believing that there is not that things are not brought about through cause and effect is wrong view. And as a practicing card-carrying Buddhist, I accept that. I mean, I, I, I accept that not because I'm a card-carrying Buddhist, because it just makes sense. And I've seen it in my own experience. And we can see it in our minds and our bodies that everything happens. You know, I'm born. You know, I breathe. You know, all these things have cause and effect. And so it, it's wonderful when we feel that things happen, and certainly many things happen that seem miraculous or magical, but the risk in saying, well, I, it, it wasn't caused or I didn't have anything to do with it, is that then we take ourselves, besides you know, abandoning the law of karma, we also take ourselves, uh, we put ourselves in a very vulnerable role, which is that we aren't responsible for ourselves, and we, if you know, if the magic stops happening, you know, or if God decides we're bad for some random reason, we're all we're at risk, you know. So, so I'm comforted by the fact that you know that cause and effect works, and that if I continue to have skillful intention, generally things will tend to move in a good direction. This, this could definitely go on further. You know, I, I really appreciate both sides of, of this <laughs> conversation, as I, I often do. The Buddha also said that, well, I think you alluded to it, it's impossible 
It, it's one of the things that will make you go crazy, one of the four unknowables, how karma exactly works. So it's not as neat as, oh, this happened, then this happened. And for me, just as a... I don't know if I'd call myself a card-carrying Buddhist uh, <laughs> first. Uh, I take my help wherever I can get it. Um, for me, one of the... One of the... Mm, one of the ways that I surrender to the Dharma is just that, through surrender and not knowing. And realizing there is so much more than meets the eye that the human mind can, with its limited perspective, can just begin to, you know, start, like the Buddha said, the handful of leaves compared to the, the leaves in the forest is what I'm teaching with you, teaching to you compared to what is known, what can be known, or what he knew, that the vastness and the mystery of it all is a kind of invitation to us to just really surrender our, our rational mind and at some point to go into a deep letting go where we are part of some very inexplicable vast mystery. And for some people... That is their doorway. They're, they're called the faith followers. And they are just as... Um, uh, enlightenment is just as accessible to the faith follower as to the wisdom follower. They're the two uh, that are spoken of in the teachings. And so whatever your way is that allows you to surrender your small rational mind that's figuring things out and have the deepest kind of letting go, whether it's seeing cause and effect and, and really letting that be the doorway through or just letting go and saying, I have no idea what's going on here, but there are these signs that life is giving me that I want to trust and follow, whether the Buddha is inside or all around you. Um, I think it's important to really honor and respect and trust what is our way to the the deepest truths. So I appreciate you. We have to we have to get going. And and well, I all you have to do is look at the, all the images are in this room to realize that the the idea that there are powers beyond ourselves are certainly a traditional Buddhist idea. Yeah, and if you start going into the cosmology, all the you know thirty two planes of existence and all the different um, uh, deva realms and stuff, even on a, on a understanding cause and effect, they are part of that understanding cause and effect that we are, that's just beyond our limited human comprehension. So um, as Joseph Goldstein, my teacher and our teacher, uh, says is one of his main contributions to contemporary dharma who knows? <laughs> and if you can say that in a way that's not frustrating or frustrated and saying, come on, I want the answer in the back of the book, but just letting go of your knowing mind, then uh, you might just open to uh, the mystery and the unconditioned. It's 
here all the time waiting for you. So thank you so thank much. You. We could thank easily you. be here for yes. another hour and it would be so rich. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll come back and uh, continue this. Uh, isn't he great? Hang out. And and all the years of practice and just you speak right from your heart and and from der- very deep practice and uh, it's just been beautiful to know you these going on thirty years yeah and he's a really great guitar player too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I have some so. books if anybody wants to oh yeah peruse or purchase a burning desire and uh, one breath at a time they're here for you so let's close with a, a short. Loving kindness, reflection. Just feeling your heart center, that getting in touch with that place inside that knows even beyond the rational mind. That can be touched, that can love, that can take in the world, and that yearns for wholeness. As you breathe in, breathe in the goodness from around you. And as this energy field that we create here together, let yourself relax and take it in. And breathe it out. Share it with all of us. May I awaken to the deepest truth May I awaken to my true nature or true nature. And may I share my love well. And then to send that out to everyone here and all beings in all directions. May all beings see clearly. May all be free of their confusion and craving and grasping that leads towards more suffering. May all awaken to the highest happiness. And may our coming here together be of benefit to everyone in our lives and all beings everywhere. May all beings find happiness and peace. Thank you very much. Have a really great week. Uh, I'll see you in a few weeks. Come and check out Anushka and Arena these next couple of weeks. And stack the chairs as a mindfulness meditation.